Hello, it's Paul Scott here, enthusiastic commentator on small caps and doing my weekly recap on the week that's just passed from our stockopedia.com small cap value reports that I write with Graham Neary. And we also had assistance this week from Megan, Megan who um, uh, helped with Graham covered Wednesday when I had uh, a day off. So thanks for that, guys. Much appreciated. Okay, launching straight into Monday, I covered Cineworld again, C-I-N-E. Now, we've been saying this looks potentially insolvent for two and a half years in the small cap value reports because it's burdened with a a colossal amount of debt. Obviously, then the pandemic hit. Um, But I think the reason that... I might have covered this last week. I think the reason that a debt for equity swap looks like it's going to fail as an idea is because of course it's not just the borrowings that are the problem with this company you've also got to look at lease liabilities and the fact that it's got a massive legal case i think of about nearly a billion pounds that was lodged against it when it failed to carry through with an agreed um, takeover bid so it's actually um, it could be the case that the, the the unsecured creditors like the potential legal claim could be the reason why the equity for this probably is is likely to get wiped out it looks very very close to now going to zero so i'm steering well clear of Cineworld. the only surprise is it took so long to to, to grind down in this way uh, now graham looked at nightcap nght this is one of these rather interesting expanding bar groups now Obviously, everyone's thinking, oh, that's, bars are terrible, you know, dis- discretionary spending is going to be cut and all this sort of thing, which broadly, I, I, I agree with that. But d- don't ignore the fact that uh, chains, restaurants and bars that are expanding right now are getting amazing deals from the landlords. Again, I, I'm repeating a point I've made here before. But I think as a contrarian uh, sector to look at, these small but rapidly expanding bar chains are could be very, very interesting because they don't have legacy issues and they're getting stunningly good deals on the new sites they're opening um nightcap i think is moderately interesting the one the my favorite one which i've mentioned before is xp factory xpf now this used to be escape hunts but it's now two um it, it acquired a thing called boom battle bars which i think is a very very interesting format and i know that format is extremely popular with landlords so Boom Battle Bars uh, within XP Factory is getting some amazing sites on stunningly good deals where the landlords are often bunging a lot of the money towards them in reverse premiums, which is obviously uh, helping to fund s- some pretty uh, heavy capex. A lot of it is coming from the landlords. So I think that one has just been drifting, drifting, drifting. Every day it drops in share price. So there's obviously... Uh, some institutional dumping going on in the background. But it seemed to catch a bid on, I think it was Thursday or Friday, at around 12 or 13p, so maybe that's nearing the low. I don't know, famous last words. But again, as contrarian plays, I think small expanding bar and restaurants are, are setting up deals that will give them extremely competitive economics compared with existing uh, businesses for the next 10 years. Typically, the lease deals are five plus five with a break clause in the middle. So you're potentially getting one of the best sites available. In some cases, a third of the rent that that site would have been on pre-pandemic. So I'm much more sceptical about buying into the traditional pub and hospitality companies because I think a lot of them are still on pretty uncompetitive rents for some of their sites. 
Uh, moving on to Tuesday then, uh, I looked at... Now, this week's really been characterised by most of the companies reporting being oh, just really boring companies that I don't, I'm just not interested in looking at. So it's been a bit of a chore going through all these companies. I did look at Cyan on Tuesday, C-Y-A-N. Now, this is interesting, very strong growth for smart meters, and it's winning some big orders abroad. But I'm questioning the revenue booking on this one because um, the the debtors, the receivables sitting on the balance sheet, look very, very high. So uh, that, I think, needs double-checking. Also, this company, Cyan, has an awful track record. Um, Serial loss-making, serial fundraiser. Uh, The share count has gone through the roof. It's got really quite stretched finances, so I think it will need another placing. But I'm intrigued by the amount of growth, and it's winning some quite big contracts for smart meters abroad. So uh, as a more speculative thing, that might be worth a look. But I'd probably stay away from that because I think it's too expensive for what it is. But if that growth really does continue at 50-60% per annum, then it could could quite uh, quickly turn around. I also looked at Ethereum, AFRN. Can't get excited about that one. Quite soft interims, but positive outlook because they've had some orders delayed by supply chain problems. Most companies seem to currently be saying that supply chains are beginning to ease. But of course, they're now coming up against the next wave of um, energy cost increases. And I think there's a lot of inflation in the system yet to come through. So, uh, But I'll, I'll touch on macro stuff after the companies. Now, Graham looked at a bombshell profit warning from RM. Um, in all honesty, I haven't actually read what he said about that, so I'll have to, well, I'll see Tuesday's report if you're interested in that. I've never particularly rated RM anyway, um, although it's easy to say that in a bear market, isn't it? Because you sound clever, but everything's dropped, so <laughs> even the good companies. So I think it's important not to sort of get confirmation bias by uh, thinking that everything that you thought wasn't much good is, is is indeed rubbish when it could be a good company that's just been dragged down with everything else. Uh, now, Wednesday, I had a day off. So, as I said before, thanks to Graham and Megan for covering. Um, Graham looked at Lookers, one of the listed car dealers. Uh, the bonanza for car dealers still continues. We know it won't last forever. But while new and hence used car supply is constricted, um, they're making fr- terrific uh, gross margins. So, And the balance sheets on these things are normally very, very good with lots of freeholds. So you're really getting a, a property company with a car dealership thrown in. Uh, I was I was at a, an independent car dealer's test driving new cars last weekend actually, and um, they were saying the same. They said things are things are ridiculously good right now because the margins are so high. So who would have thought that two and a half years ago when COVID started that actually car dealers are going to be constricted for supply and their profits are going to go through the roof. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, Graham looked at timeout as well. Uh, I think the ticket there is just T-I-M-E. Um, it looks financially distressed. Uh, I've never understood why that one was on the valuation it was, um, although I haven't looked at it myself. Thursday, um, McFarlane, M-A-C-F. This is a packaging distributor, and it also manufactures a relatively small amount itself as well. I like this. I think it's good value. Good, solid company. Um, it seems to be successfully passing through cost increases to its customers. 
uh, fairly low gross margins, which is quite good because it means that it's difficult for other people to undercut you and there isn't a huge amount of operational gearing. So gross margins being low, paradoxically, in a recession, is actually can be quite useful in preserving profits if you can pass through those cost increases. Now, many thanks to one of the readers, Effortless Cool, who pointed out something that I'd actually flagged myself in previous uh, reports on McFarlane, but I had temporarily forgotten, which is that it doesn't present adjusted P&L numbers. It just shows the ta- the statutory P&L numbers, which means that the amortisation charge um, for um, relating to acquisitions goes through the P&L, and they don't adjust it out, whereas practically everyone else does adjust out the amortisation charge. Therefore, that has the effect effect of making McFarlane's profits and earnings per share appear lower than they really are if you were to strip out the amortisation charge to bring it in line with everyone else. So that means that McFarlane's actually better value than it first appears when you look at the numbers and you make that adjustment. Um, the balance sheet's okay. It's not amazing. Um, it's on a PE, a forward PE of about nine, I think nine, but no, just under ten. Uh, and this, this is a good quality business, I think McFarlane is based in Scotland. It's been making some fairly sensible-looking acquisitions in a fairly fragmented sector. So as a long-term value share, I think McFarlane should do pretty well. So I like that one. Obviously, as with everything in a bear market, I've got no idea at what level the shares bottom out at. Who knows? It's anybody's guess. Uh, I also had a look at Hunting, HTG. This is an engineering group providing what looks like fairly heavy equipment for the oil and gas industry. Now, obviously, they're now in a sweet spot because of the current energy crisis that we're having. Suddenly, um, particularly European governments are realising that they should have given some thought to energy security. So... In in the UK, uh, I believe press reports are saying that the UK government's thinking about uh, allowing fracking and really getting North Sea gas production cranked up. Um, obviously, in the pursuit of uh, re- uh, renewables, um, traditional energy sources have been um, have been neglected, and I do think uh, that's a pretty major topic and theme at the moment isn't it that yes it's re- important to to focus on growing renewables but they've neglect governments in lots of places have really not thought about energy security which i think could cause um, a major redirection of Im- an encouragement of investing um, which should be very good for hunting um, so its results reflected that they've improved about break-even um, but the outlook comments from hunting were very good I don't know how you value it that's the difficult bit so don't know on that Graham looked at Argo blockchain don't get me onto Bitcoin I think it's absolute nonsense it's just been one of the well the blockchain technology could have some practical uses let's be clear on that I get that but in terms of the valuation of the tokens it's just been a giant speculative bubble nothing more nothing less people who, who are buying them are not interested interested in the practical applications for all this proliferation of uh, various coins. They're pure and simple speculations, um, nothing more than that. Um, so I've been saying that for years. But the interesting thing about uh, blockchain tokens is that the speculative bubble has burst and then reinflated, I think at least once, maybe twice. So I don't know if you can create two, two three trillion dollars worth of value out of thin air 
it's probably going to be just a speculative bubble, isn't it? So uh, I don't know any serious investors who've invested in, in, in Bitcoin or the like. Um, it seems to be sort of ordinary Joes, millions and millions of fairly uh, clueless, uh, ordinary people just just having a punt on it. And there was a great story, actually, in the Sunday Times supplement, I think it was last week or possibly the week before, about a 16-year-old American kid who made and lost over a million US dollars just just wildly punting on, on Bitcoin using leverage. And I was reading this article and then thinking, what a complete fool. But then, of course, it dawned on me over the same period that he made and lost over a million dollars on Bitcoin, I'd made and lost substantially more than a million dollars on AIM shares. And I thought, well, you know, are we that different? <laughs> so, you know, and actually, I thought his attitude was great. He just said, you know, I've learned from this. And if I can, you know, learn the lessons from this and if I can do it once, I can do it again. So I'm not sure that'll necessarily be the case with blockchain. But uh, I suppose with every bell curve distribution, you'll get a handful of people do incredibly well, won't you? And it's more luck than judgment, arguably. But a very interesting story. And uh, I think with Bitcoin, you know, it just um, it just fits absolutely all the criteria of a of a classic speculative bubble. So it just ticks all the boxes. It's something new. People who uh, decry it are told they don't understand it. Um, it's impossible to actually value rationally. So therefore, the fact that it's overvalued. Uh, can't be proven because it could be worth anything um the you know a whole sort of culture builds up around it and um communities who are speculating on all these things uh, you get pump and dump people attracted into the area um people find ways of breaking the rules and creating you know it attracts a lot of speculators and a lot of crooks and, you know, all these things are just classic signs of a speculative bubble. And what happens when all the, the value collapses? Well, you could then find that people have borrowed money to buy these things. I mean, I, I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but my hairdresser told me he'd taken out a 30 grand personal loan to uh, to punt on Bitcoin. And I said, well, you know, just make sure you're only punting with money you can afford to lose. Lots of family and friends who don't know anything about business or finance have uh, have asked me about Bitcoin and would I invest in it? And I just said, no, I wouldn't touch it. It's just, you know, it's worth nothing. It's just a classic speculative bubble. Nothing more, nothing less. So, um, I mean, the Airbnb landlord I stayed with in Malta last year, who got, I got quite pally with over the week I stayed there. We had some, some good, um, some good uh, um, uh, drinks out on the terrace in the evening. And um, it turned out he told me he'd put a hundred grand in what he called a stable coin, and I couldn't help it. I just burst out laughing. I said, "Isn't that a contradiction in terms?" Of course, quite a few of them have collapsed since then, because uh, the the price fixing mechanisms were were unstable. And um, and he said, "Yeah, but I'm getting a fourteen percent um, interest income on it." So I said, "Who's paying the fourteen percent?" Ah, I I don't know. Well, I said, if you're getting a 14% yield on something and you don't know who's paying the 14% yield, it's not going to last, you know. And he said, is there any chance you could be wrong? I, I stopped and thought about it and said, short term, yes. I have no, long, no idea how long this bubble's going to last. But long term, no. If you can create trillions of value from nothing, backed by nothing, and you're not a government, 
with uh, tax raising powers, then it's a bubble. Simple as that. So anyway, we'll see what happens. But uh, I knew I'd ramble off the point on Bitcoin. It just, uh, yeah. Anyway, so that was Graham looking at Argo blockchain, which, as you can probably guess, both Graham and I think is a pile of poo. Now, on Friday, the big surprise on Friday was a bid at almost double, almost 100% premium for MicroFocus, a mid-cap software company, now MCRO. Now, MicroFocus is practically insolvent. It's got $3.65 billion of debt. It's having to make disposals to reduce debt. Uh, insolvent's a strong word because it's only insolvent if it can't actually pay the debt when it falls due. But on a technical balance sheet basis, it's certainly financially distressed. Huge. One of the worst balance sheets of any company on the market. So you can imagine my my uh, amazement when I saw a bid, somebody, a Canadian firm has bid for it at almost double the current market cap. So I think once again, this brings home the point, which we've discussed here a few times, that software companies seem to attract premium bids and there's often value in these soft companies software companies perceived by bidders that is certainly not obvious from the numbers whether it's client relationships you know uh, cross selling opportunities being sort of embedded into lots of businesses where you're providing absolutely essential software and services that they need to run the business. So for that reason, I think it's very difficult to spot uh, takeover bids in the sector because how do you know if it's just a serial disappointer, which, of course, Tungsten and Proactus were, but both of those attracted bids, um, amazingly. There was also Emis, which attracted a bid, which looks a much better company, but, again, the, the, the valuation multiple was perplexing. And why anyone would want to take on $3.65 billion of debt by buying Microfocus is um, they must see... They obviously see value there. It's a big Canadian outfit. And that's the second Canadian firm that's bought a UK um, mid-cap. I think it was... Was it RWS the cons- or RPS? The consulting group, anyway, that got, a, again, a, a big premium on a takeover big bid for from a Canadian competitor who paid a P of something like 25. So bidders, I think, you know, can often can often see hidden value um, in in things. So Microfocus, well done who was any, uh, uh, to anyone who was in it and just ignored the risk. You know, you've got a good payday. So now Alumask, ALU, a building products company, uh, interesting... RNS from them, they uh, buried a trading update in this as well. It was a disposal announcement. They are selling off one division, which is losing money. The business that does, uh, oh, what's it called? I can't remember the name of it now, but it does uh, sort of shading systems for buildings and balconies and things. So it's not really a very good fit with the rest of the group. Well, anyway, they've disposed of it. They've given it away for a quid, basically. Well, less than that, but they've given it away with a one point just over a million pound cash pile intact. So really, they're paying someone to take it away. But it's lost a a two million pound loss in the year to June 22. Now, of course, disposing of it now means that they can report it as discontinued operations, which gives a nice healthy boost to um, the remaining group's profits and they've said they're in line so i think that probably indicates that they're probably a bit behind forecast but hiving off uh, the loss making part of the business into a disposal means that it gives a boost to 
the uh, continuing operations numbers. Uh, Alimask looks quite cheap, but um, like with everything at the moment, I don't know what the future earnings are likely to be. Now, one ray of sunshine on Friday, I looked at a, 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 um, a trading update from Traxis, TRCS. This is the group that John MacArthur built up very, very well through acquisitions, and he done, did it without issuing much paper, which is difficult to do. Um, but they selectively take on a bit of, of debt, but they tend to buy nice cash-generative businesses, and then the debt gets repaid, and it's currently got net cash, and certainly with uh, that's got a nice software business within it, Traxxas has. And th- what impressed me most about this is not the valuation, which is quite pricey, it's on PE of about 25, but the Outlook com- comments from Traxxas look really, really good. So I think it looks like it's um, in a nice sweet spot now, winning new business. And uh, as I say, it's not cheap by any means, but I think if you just... It's the sort of thing where I think just buying it and forgetting about it for five or ten years, you'll probably... I mean, you'll never know what what's going to happen that far into the future. But it seems very well managed. They're really good at acquisitions, and their core businesses look very good. And they've also got... Lot, they seem to be winning um, new contracts and have very good uh, pipeline of uh, interest in their in their in their products. So yeah, I think Traxxas looks really good, not cheap. So really, a highlight of my week then in a in a fairly lacklustre week would be Traxxas, McFarlane, and Nightcap, or at least um, that that sector for expanding bar chains because they're getting these these good deals. Apart from that, couldn't really get excited about anything. So thinking about general market conditions, obviously uh, the last week's been another really grim week. Uh, we we did have a nice recovery building, um, but I mentioned last week that I couldn't understand why the US markets had rallied so much, so strongly and that it, it looked like a, um, a bear market rally to me. Um, unfortunately, that's certainly been what we've seen this last week. It's another been another really tough week for small and mid caps. I see that the AIM all share index is down by almost a third in uh, the last year. It was we're, we're coming up to the high point in last year's um, bull market. We're coming up to lapping that. So really, really tough in the small caps world. Everyone's feeling it. I'm finding it very, very difficult to uh, keep a lid on the uh, emotions of depression and despair that keep uh, cropping up but I could just keep reminding myself that my SIP is long-term money um, it, you know, I'm certainly not selling any of my positions at current prices and I shouldn't need the money for at least 10 years so uh, you know investing in shares is meant to be long-term investing but it's treated I, I think by more people really more like a, a casino than than a long-term place to invest um, Maybe people have got it right, you know, selling at the uh, highs and buying at the lows. But, of course, that's easier said than done, isn't it? So I lots of shares on my watch list, things I don't necessarily own, I've seen falling again quite sharply this week. Ones that stand out to me, um, Shoe Zone, which was on my possible buys list, that peaked at about £1.95. That's dropped a lot, dropped by about a quarter um, this week. Um so I think that's coming into buying range again. Volex as well put out a really nice, I do own Volex, put out a very nice positive trading update, um, or in line anyway, um, nothing to worry about type trading update, but that's given back a good 10% or more of um, its price, having having bounced strongly. Uh, Luceco is another one that made a valiant effort to, to bottom out at around a pound, 
and that's fallen through and it's dipped back below a pound. I don't hold that one. IG Designer do hold, did a very powerful recovery. That's held most of the gains, but it is drifting off again. So it looks like, which we touched on uh, in previous podcasts, it does look like people are, are, are selling banking profits on these strong rebounds. Um and I, given given the extent of the negative news, I can I can I can sympathise with that. I can see why, because the macro news is just getting worse by the day, isn't it? I mean, latest things this week were that um, obviously it's, the news is dominated by energy bills. Now, whilst this is all terrible and the news is getting worse on a daily basis, I do detect from press reports that the penny is finally dropping with the politicians that they're going to have to do something big. Again, I touched on this last week. And I think Liz Truss is coming out, who almost certainly is going to be the next Prime Minister. Bizarre though that is. That's what the, the betting odds are telling us. Um, she uh, She's certainly shooting from the hip and coming out with some ridiculous stuff, I think, like that uh, incredibly stupid comment about Macron saying it's not clear whether he's friend or foe. I mean, this is the Foreign Secretary, FFS. You know, she should be using diplomatic language, not trying to score cheap points um, in, in a leadership battle here by alienating uh, France's leader. I think that was really dumb. Um, sorry, I'm straying onto politics again. And, you know, um, they're just making up policy on the hoof and doing U-turns. You know, she said this business about we're not giving handouts. Well, sorry, Liz, you've got to. This is an emergency. Uh, you cannot charge an average household five or six thousand a year for their utility bills when they were used to paying twelve hundred pounds a year. That This is an emergency on a scale with COVID, I think. And given that governments are now highly interventionist, because they've learned in 2008 and in 2020 with COVID that actually it needs big, bold interventions by government in an emergency. And you worry about paying for it later. And in any case, the national debt is not 95% of, of GDP. It's about 60% of GDP when you, when you, when you contra the, the, the gilts of their own by the Bank of England. None of the journalists understand, understand that. I had a heated debate with that Alice, national treasure, Alistair Stewart, on Twitter, who got really arsy with me and threatened to block me because I was just trying to educate him on QE. He didn't have a clue. And his allergy was, was laughable. An allergy was laughable. He said, if I lend money to my wife, that is still household debt that has to be paid off. No, it's not, Alistair. Your, your, your analogy was ridiculous. If you owe your, your wife money and you remain married, then your household debt contras off. He just didn't. And I said, that's what QE is. The Bank of England owns nearly a billion worth of gilts issued by the Treasury. Now, but he completely misunderstood this and thought I was advocating permanent QE, which I wasn't. But you see, the trouble is people don't read what you actually say. They uh, reinterpret it. It goes through some sort of filter where it's either diverted to, oh, he's talking sense or, oh, he's talking bollocks. And Alistair Stewart, I'm afraid, has really gone down in my estimation for the fact that he wouldn't listen to what I was trying to explain to him. But none of the journalists understand QE. So all this talk about the government not having the firepower to do anything is utter rubbish. Uh, they've got plenty of firepower, and there's about $30 billion in uh, extra taxation that's flowed in from fis fiscal drag, for example. So I think we'll see big, bold moves on energy bills. And the obvious thing they need to do is just say, right, we're putting in a hard cap 
at say two thousand or two thousand five hundred pound a year, it will not go above that. Um, and the government will work out some sort of mechanism to reprice how ele- electricity is, is is priced. Because, I mean, the whole market mechanism is obviously now unfit for purpose. Because why should nuclear power and renewable power have have gone up five or six times in selling price? Because it's based on the price of natural gas. Whereas their input costs uh, have nothing to do with the price of natural, ga- natural gas. So the system's broken. It's going to have to be fixed. In the meantime... I wouldn't be surprised if government in- intervention comes in around 100 billion. It's got to, because the consequences of not doing massive intervention are even worse. And you'll end up spending more than 100 billion um, dealing with uh, an economic depression when tax revenues dry up. So I think, you know, sometimes big government intervention is necessary. Uh, and history proves that from the 1930s Great Depression, where governments tried to balance the books in a downturn, it doesn't work. And massive stimulus was the only way to solve it. Same was true in 2008, and the same was true in 2020. So that, I appreciate not everyone will agree with me, and it's fine. Everyone's got their own views on this, and nobody knows what will happen. Um, so I think because big action on energy bills is likely to be announced very, very soon, maybe that could provide uh, a reason for, for markets to bounce a little bit. Uh, but I'm, I'm not... I'm not I'm not particularly bullish overall at the moment, I have to say, because we're going to navigate through quite a a difficult period. But obviously, I'm taking a long-term view, and long-term, equities will inevitably be a really good place to be um, in in times of higher inflation. And the inflation will work through the system, it always does. Uh, And this is an energy crisis, not a general inflation crisis. So, I don't know. Long-term, I'm bullish. Short-term, I'm still very nervous, I've got to say. Uh, so I'm continuing to build my buy list of shares that I think are, w- are worth looking at. It's the research done now that paves the ground for the big multi-baggers of the future. That's what I found in previous bear markets. Uh, and if when the bull market actually starts, if you're prepared and you've got cash ready to deploy in things that are really irrationally sold off, those are going to give you big multi-baggers um, in the future. But I have no idea when that point is going to happen. I don't think we're there yet, are we? But we'll see. Thanks for all the reader comments again. Uh, I really love reading them, and it's nice to know that people are finding these podcasts uh, interesting. So uh, much appreciated. The other thing, uh, I thought that somebody pointed out to me that, that um, the holiday sector could get a boost this autumn-winter because it's now going to be so expensive to heat our homes that actually some uh, an increasing number of people, retired people and people who can work remotely, are thinking of just booking um, a cheap Airbnb in the Canary Islands or something for December and January. Uh, you can only stay out there three months, can't you? 90 days out of 180 days, as we're now uh, due to Brexit. But that's, uh, you know, if you just put your boiler on Frost Protect back at home, get the neighbours or someone to, to, to check on it, and then and then you bugger off to Gran Canaria for two or three months. I mean, I'm thinking of doing that myself, actually. Or I th- so, so that could be quite a, an interesting boost for the holiday sector. You never know. I think that was pretty much everything. Um, yeah, just reading through the notes here. 
Yeah. Oh, um, just on house prices, I'm starting to see locally in Bournemouth signs of a softening market. I talked to an estate agent last week uh, and he said, yeah, um, a lot of sellers are now moderating their, their, their asking prices. A flat I looked at, just, just purely out of interest, which looked rather nice, was on the market at 450000 um, and it's in my road and it's come down to four two five. So uh, he he said there's a lot of that, and I'm also getting emails from Right Move and and so on, headed up price reductions. So yeah, looks like the housing market's beginning to soften, which you would expect, wouldn't you, in the current conditions? Also, we had a terrible read on consumer sentiment. I looked that up on the G- GFK website, who do these things, and uh, it's reached a record low in June at minus forty one, where zero is neutral. Um, looking at digging into the data, though, the um, it's the general economic situation which is the real drag on the index. That is far worse than people's perception of their own personal financial situation, which is quite interesting, isn't it? So it's the doom and gloom on the news uh, and all the, the worrying about um, energy bills. That is the reason for, for weak consumer confidence i think personally it's only when people are losing all their jobs or threatening to lose their jobs that it really they really slash spending but i think a lot of people are very anxious about energy bills i mean everybody i talk to sort of in normal life if you like so not the not not the shares multimillionaires that makes up a good section of my uh, of my uh, friendship groups but um ordinary people if you like and people are People are, are really worried about the energy bills, just saying, look, we, you know, we're going to have to cut back on a lot of stuff to be able to pay these bills. So it's no wonder consumer confidence is on the floor, is it? I just hope that the government measures, uh, which I think are probably imminent, are effective and decisive and bold, not fiddling around with, with the half measures. We need stuff that's going to directly bring down the headline inflation rate by a lot. Uh, there was talk in the papers today about Liz Truss or the Treasury considering a 5% cut in VAT. I think that's, yes, that's going to reduce headline uh, inflation, although I think a lot of it would not necessarily be passed on by retailers. Um, that's the drawback of that. To me, it just seemed just directly attack the energy bills, because that's what's causing the problem. So I personally favour a much more direct approach. Um, to get those energy bills down on a number of fronts and to get capacity production increased as fast as they can. But I appreciate that takes years rather than months usually. So I don't know. We'll see where we go. But um, I think I'll leave it there for this week. Thanks for listening. I hope uh, you found this interesting. And do leave your comments. I really enjoy reading them. Um, great. So I'll, And I'm sorry this was a day late. I was just feeling a bit down in the dumps on Saturday yesterday. And the last thing I wanted to do was talk about shares. <laughs> so I had an early night and I'm, I've sort of recharged my positive energy uh, overnight. <laughs> OK, so I should be back on Saturday as normal next week. Thanks a lot. Bye for now.